Well, we are in chapter 22 of the book of Exodus in a section of laws called the Book of Ordinances. And these were uh, case laws given to Israel in addition to the Ten Commandments. And they are direct from God, and they uh, agreed to live by all these case laws. They're not every single law that Israel had on the books. There, there was many thousands of them. But these really form... Uh, I can't think of the legal term for it, but this is where uh, all of their laws are drawn from. And sections like the Book of Ordinances typically are are kind of flyover zones. That is, Christians may read them once or twice in their life. Sometimes the laws seem really strange, but typically, you know, we move on to what we think are are more important or at least feel more relevant uh, passages to us. And, you know, frankly, I disagree. And I think these laws are actually really important, not only because God thinks they were important enough to be included in his word, but because they teach us about him and his ways. So this morning, we're covering verses 1 through 15 of chapter 22, but I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9. So keep your your Bible open. We'll hit the other uh, few verses after that, too. Chapter 22, beginning verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, I pray that this would be a good time to meditate on your word because it teaches us about who you are and who you would have us to be and how you would have us to think and see the world and how you would have our desires shaped to you and what you love. So Lord, I pray this time would be good for that, that this would be one more step of us growing in our faith and our love and our thinking and what we want, and how we feel about things, all in light of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there there are some sermons in which um, the text is driving you to behave in a certain way. So you could just think of, like, say, the Ten Commandments, or you know, working through certain sections of Paul's letters, or the Sermon on the Mount, things like that. And in some ways, those are the easiest sermons to preach and the easiest ones to hear because they're basically says, God says this, now you go and do it. In fact, I get the best feedback from those kinds of sermons. So if you're looking for that today, 
I'm just going to go ahead and tell you up front exactly what God wants you to do uh, in terms of these laws. Love your neighbor well by not stealing from him. Don't destroy his property. Don't kill him if he attempts to rob you in the daylight. But if it's at night, you might be justified. Uh, don't abuse his trust if he gives you something for safekeeping. Be a good neighbor. That, that's what is at the heart of, of these laws. But the thing is, when you read through Scripture, it isn't just a list of things to do. Are those things there? Sure. Clearly, here's laws, right? But if you want Scripture just to be a list of things to do, just go do this and you'll be fine, well, you might want to seek out the Muslims because that's what Islam does. No, God's Word is so much deeper. It's so much richer. There's so much more going on. God's Word is intended to teach us how to see the world as God does. God doesn't want you just to pattern your behavior after him. I mean, he does clearly want that. He wants you to pattern how you think and how you feel and what you desire after him too. So the laws we're looking at today, they are easy enough to understand. In fact, I'd argue that because Western culture has been so impacted by Christianity, even non-believers or people antagonistic to Christianity take these laws just to be obvious and good. And I, and I don't expect any of you uh, to be shocked by these laws or to think, you know, I had no idea stealing was bad. How about that? No, it, we, we all get it. What I'd rather us do today, and this is going to be more difficult, you're really going to have to, to work with me here. You're going to have to crank down a little bit. I want us to ask why these laws? Why are these even here? Why does God give them? Because they're not arbitrary. God isn't just coming up with a list of things to do. And you know what? They're not obvious either, even though we may feel like they are. No, they actually reflect both God's character and his intentions for humanity, for what he actually made us to do and be. So if you want to, to learn to see and, and to think as you look out in the world, as you interpret people, as you work at your jobs, if you want to do these things in the same patterns as God does, which is, by the way, the whole point of the sermon, you have to start at the beginning. You have to start at the beginning. See, everything you find in the Bible, I mean everything you find in the Bible, has the book of Genesis standing in the background. Christians have often read Genesis as merely a book of origins or as a story that hops from one character to the next, not realizing that this is the most genius work of Hebrew philosophy, and I would argue philosophy, period, that has ever been written. It is the pursuit of wisdom and reasoning and how to make sense of this world. And it's clearly, as you read through this, it's not done like Plato or Descartes or Foucault. It's, it's not abstract propositional statements that will put you asleep in three minutes. No, Hebrew philosophy is written in this tightly woven, meticulously constructed stories that are just loaded with details that really matter, and they pop as you read through Scripture and keep going. So when you read Genesis 1, it's not just telling you who made the world. It's intentionally written in such a way that you're meant to pattern your thinking and your seeing of the world after God's own creative work. The Bible is meant to be read throughout your life over and over again as you meditate on it. So, for example, 
you know, a lot of Christians in our country kind of pursue just kind of like a daily quiet time where they get a couple of verses, have a prayer and move along. And, you know, that's fine. That can really work and that can really be helpful. I want to encourage you instead, go back and read Genesis 1 through 11 for a month. And then go read the book of John and its prologue and compare it again and see what you find. And you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to be overwhelmed at what you see. Just go and compare Joseph against Abraham. Or then compare Abraham against Moses. And you'll start to see these details pop. And all of a sudden you're like, Jesus is all over the Old Testament. That's what we want to be about. Where we read this, this text, not to just kind of get through it and say, check mark, got that done, but to really meditate on it and think through it and work through this text because that's what it was intended to be read like. So if you go to Genesis and you just start with chapter one, you know, we read there that God alone creates and names the world. He's it. He creates everything ex nihilo, which means something out of nothing just by the word of, of his mouth. Chapter one, you see, establishes God as the ultimate authority because he's the creator and owner of everything. He names the world, and that's really important. It's really important. I'll come back to that in a second. And the way Moses presents the days of creation is as God working like a master craftsman, giving shape to raw materials. As he does this, he gives names to things. You see the phrases, and God said, or God called uh, repeatedly through that chapter. And interestingly, this is the only time we see him doing this. This is the only time you see him doing this with the whole of creation. Of course, he names other people and so forth. But this is the one spot where you see him doing this with his creation. Now, with chapter two, we zoom in on humanity and humanity's role and placement in the garden. In chapter one, humanity is blessed by God with the role of dominion and stewardship over God's creation, and only humans are given this job. We're it. Do other creatures work? Do they do stuff? Yes, of course they do. All his creatures are called to be fruitful and multiply, but humans alone are um, God's prime ministers, so to speak, and our work mirrors God's own creative work. As his image bearers, we were created to bring order to the world that God made and we do this in communion with him. So to live a godly life then is to pattern your life after God's life and in turn bring his patterns of order to bear in the places that God has put you. So your Christian calling isn't just to be honest or kind. That's important, but it's not just that. It's to work in ways that reflect God's character and that bring order and beauty to the world. And we see this in how God tells Adam to name the animals. What's in view there is God giving authority to humanity over his creation. God could have named them all and said, here it is. Go memorize the list as if it's a seventh grade science class, right? No, he says, come, Adam, name the creatures. You see, to name something is to have authority over it. It's why parents are given the privilege and responsibility of naming their children. To put your word to something, to name a thing or to name a person is to have a kind of possession or a kind of authority over that thing. And though this sounds really strange to modern ears, it's just how God himself works. I mean, think about it. God puts his name on us. When you are baptized, that is symbolically God putting his name on us and he claims us as his own. And in turn, we are allowed to claim him for ourselves. 
He's not just the God. He's our God. So, for example, you can continue to to push this even further. Paul says a wife has authority over her husband's body. And a husband has authority over his wife's body. It's not one or the other. It's both. And this authority and really it's it's ownership over each other is fundamental to the marriage relationship. I mean, that's just straight first Corinthians seven. You can't have marriage without this. And we tend to think we have total autonomy over our bodies. Nobody can tell us what to do. No one should interact with us, but that's not what the Bible teaches at all. God has authority and possession over us, as do our spouses. You are not your own. That is repeated all throughout scripture. You are not your own. It's why adultery is not only a version of murder, it's a version of theft. Now, the opposite of God's intention for humanity is disorder and chaos. And that's Genesis 3. The serpent attempts to bring disorder. He attempts to undo God's structure, the relationship, the commands that God intended for his creation. So the serpent drives this wedge between God and his people, between man and woman, between siblings. We see that with Cain and Abel and between humanity and the world itself. And that's exactly why these case laws That's exactly what they are fighting against, this disordering, this breakdown, this chaos uh, wreaked by the servant. Now, go back to Genesis 2 again. Eden itself was a paradise sanctuary, or more accurately, a temple. This was the place where God dwelled with humanity. It was heaven and earth come together. That's what temples and sanctuaries are. So symbolically, this is why we call this room the sanctuary. This is a symbol of heaven and earth having come together and us being in communion with our God. That's why it is purposely different from any other room you typically go in throughout your week. And so what we see happening in in Genesis 2.15 with Adam, this is so fascinating. It is the exact same description, the exact same Hebrew phrase given to the Levites working in the tabernacle and then in the temple. He's given that because Adam was a priest. Adam was a priest. This is why the fall is tied to Adam first. He failed in his priestly duty of mediating the word of God to his wife, Eve. You see, God's word was given to Adam before Eve was ever created, and he was in turn to mediate this word to Eve. I mean, this is the whole backdrop of Paul's argument about an all-male priesthood, which is reflected throughout the entire Old Testament in all of Christian history up until very recently when Christians started rejecting God's ordering of worship. But as you read through the description of Eden, it is clear that while uh, Adam was at least initially called to be a priest serving in God's temple, humanity was not meant to only be in the temple. Humans were meant to mediate, to bring God's presence and order everywhere, to go out from Eden into the rest of the world. And that's why God calls his people in the Old Testament, and Peter repeats this in the New Testament, he calls them a royal priesthood. All of Israel did not work in the temple. There was just one group that worked in the temple, and yet they are a royal priesthood. And in a certain sense, if you think about this, I'm a Levite. Right? Because I serve in God's house is my work. But you, 
our royal priests to go out from the temple, out from the sanctuary, out from Eden and bring God's presence everywhere you go. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Humanity was meant to go out into God's creation and subdue it and to bring order and to bring God's presence and rule to what would have felt like a kind of wild and woolly world. This is why God's creative pattern of six days plus Sabbath rest is the basis for our own work and rest. With that seventh day rest being communion with God in his temple. I mean, there is nothing more natural for humanity than to structure life and time around Sabbath rest and worship and to, and to reject this pattern is to reject God's purposes in order for humanity. I mean, it's basically to follow in the disorder of the serpent. So when you look at, at the curses then, this is Genesis 3, that come as a result of humanity's sin, the curse against Adam is that the ground would fight against humanity's stewardship and dominion of it. And though it doesn't mention it in that verse, the animal kingdom would in turn resist our dominion as well. You know, one of the, the fundamental defining features of our humanity has been frustrated and made far harder, even as we are still called to do this. So when God gives authority to humanity, you know, especially in the naming of other creatures like the animals, when we see this calling of us to go out and have dominion and, and subdue and, and stewardship and all that, Believe it or not, he's actually establishing human ownership over the creation. Following God's own pattern, we take ownership or authority first by giving words to something. But as you move through Genesis, it's clear that authority and ownership would extend to the land and to the animal kingdom too, even as it would be more difficult because you know, the land and animals often work against us and because there is tension between people. The laws in Exodus 22 actually fight against that tension. They are intended to protect Israel as a new Adam and the restart of a new Eden. So owning things feels natural to us. It feels natural to us and rightly so. I mean, I think it's bound up with our humanity, even as there is Obviously, now the potential for abuse and, you know, whether it's, you know, hoarding assets or theft or envy or scarcity or poverty, whatever it may be. Even so, what Genesis teaches, and this is repeated throughout the Bible, is that God owns everything. This is his world. There's not a square inch of, uh, of creation that he does not claim for himself, and he refuses to let it go to rot or to destruction. That's why. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension has cosmic effects. He's not just interested in your soul. He's interested in everything. He's taking back everything. But God loves to share authority and ownership with humanity. In fact, he made us for this. It's like how my wife and I own our house, but we freely give our sons their rooms. Now, is their space technically ours? Uh, yes, yes, it is. We paid for it and we can take it back whenever it's being misused or destroyed, just like how God exiled Israel for her rebellion against him. But at the same time, their rooms are their rooms and we want them to be responsible for them. We want them to take care of them. We want them to order them well. See, I think in order for any person to grow into adulthood, they need 
their own space. They need their own property and the responsibility of ownership and authority in order to grow into God's purposes for them. So it's right to say, you know, this is my tool or my home or my car and to feel a personal connection of ownership with things or to feel as if that thing is an extension of yourself. Now, while it is true that that we are not what we own or that life is not found in the abundance of our possessions, it is virtually impossible to be a fully functioning human without having dominion or stewardship or responsibilities over some area of something. It could be an estate or it could be a Lego set in anything in between. That's why our jobs are bound up with our identities. You know, people like to say, you aren't your job. And you know, that's, that's true as far as it goes. But our humanity is bound up with stewardship and dominion. That is, with our work. You will spend the majority of your life working. And that's good. It's why being jobless or homeless or on government subsidies can be so devastating to a person in the long run. It's also why it is a complete misunderstanding to read Acts 4 as advocating for communism or John Lennon's dream of a possessionless society. No, that that would actually be a denial of what God intended for humanity and a repudiation of the Old Testament. No, that's not what it's after at all. Okay, so let's stop for a moment. Are you still with me? You still still track it with me? I just threw a ton of biblical theology at you in a fairly short amount of time. I'm not going to offer you a mental break. Just take a breath. All right, here we go. Let's keep going. So this section of case laws in Exodus 22, all of what I just said stands in the background of these case laws. Actually, all of the case laws in the book of ordinances, but we're looking at these in particular uh, that are basically an extension of the Eighth Commandment, which obviously then protects against loss or theft of property. Now, if humanity is intended all this thinking now, if humanity is intended to bring God's order to the world, then the loss of property works against that. In fact, theft or willful destruction of someone else's property is what the serpent delights in because it causes disorder and chaos. Now, as we go through these laws, and again, they are not difficult to understand, you are probably going to find them unremarkable. They're probably going to feel obvious to you and rightly so, but these laws were radical for their time, and really, I think they still are. See, everyone in Israel was entitled to their own land, their own property, and not even Israel's king uh, could take somebody else's property without impunity. I mean, that's so different from the ancient world. In the ancient world, most people did not own their own land. They worked somebody else's land as either a slave or as a servant, I mean, you might uh, have your own quarters, maybe, or with a few possessions, but you might not. If you were a farmer, you didn't farm your own land. You farmed the nobility's land or maybe the priesthood's land, but that's not how it was in Israel. Under Moses, just like with laws we see here, instead of dominion and stewardship being isolated to just a few people, like say with Pharaoh or the nobility, or the government under communism. In Israel, dominion was spread to every human, 
male and female alike. It's a return to what God intended for his image bearers. It's a restart of Eden and the command to be fruitful and multiply given to Adam. And we see, we can see the impact of this biblical thinking and, and, you know, this does not come from anywhere else. I'm telling you, it comes from the Bible. You can see the impact on the Western world over the last 1,000 years. You know, it is now possible for large numbers of people, probably more so now than in any other time in history, to have property or dominion, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. In recognition of how God made humanity, we should want this for everyone. That said, you know, the laws on property, like, like all laws in Israel, were intended to protect and keep this new Eden in place. So these laws in our section can be simplified to two main sections that, that start with the worst crimes, then move to the least. And you can kind of see this happen each new section. They start with the worst and then move to the least worst, I guess you'd say. The first section is verses one through six, and it deals with the unauthorized invasion of someone else's property, that is theft or destruction of someone's property. And then the second section is verses seven through 15, and it deals with breaches of trust. Like when someone entrusts something to you for safekeeping and it goes missing or is destroyed or what have you. So let's begin with the worst of these crimes, that's theft. So as you look there uh, in verse one, the first law involves theft of livestock. And the thief in turn, you know, whether he kills it or he steals it or sells it or what it, what it may be, uh, the penalty then is five ox for the one ox and four sheep for the single sheep. And this is a huge uh, financial penalty. I mean, typically the penalty for theft, and, and again, you're going to see this in our passage too, is the item stolen plus one, as in you pay back what you took plus the value of what you took. So if I stole an iPhone from someone, I would owe them their iPhone back plus a new one. See how that, that, that principle works. You take what you took, you give back, and then what you were trying to take from them, you give that to them too. So, and this is opposed to, you know, maybe you lose a hand or your life, or you're thrown in prison for an indefinite amount of time or what, what, whatever, right? So this is the one plus one is pretty equitable, all things considered. So it's not exactly clear with this first one though, why God enacts such a high penalty for ox and for sheep. But it seems like what's in mind, uh, the context of this is the rich hurting the poor. So for example, Nathan confronted David over his assault of Bathsheba with a story, if you'll remember that story, of a rich man stealing a poor man's sheep. And David, his response to this is that he exploded in rage and demanded the death penalty, the death penalty for a sheep. Or in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, which remember, you know, being a tax collector was legalized theft under the power of Rome. When he comes to faith, he pledges to give away half his possessions. And if he had defrauded anyone, which as a tax collector, tax collector would have been probably most of the people he interacted with, he pledged to give fourfold in return, just like in our passage. So the best I can tell to steal a family's ox or their sheep was to seriously, I mean seriously, hurt that family. And this might have probably typically happened with the poor. It would have been like having an entire bank account wiped out. 
Now, the next law deals with breaking and entering with the intent to steal. So if a man breaks in at night and in the process is killed by the homeowner, the homeowner is innocent. The homeowner has the right to defend his family and his property. Now, if it happens during the day, the homeowner may not kill the thief or else he's guilty of murder. And the basic thinking is that, you know, at night, and keep in mind, there's, there's no street lights or, or any sort of electric lights as we think about it, a homeowner cannot see what is happening and has every right to defend his home and family. But in the daylight, you can see. You can see the man stealing from you. And keep in mind, if he's stealing an ox or a sheep, it's going to be out in your yard. You can be like, hey, you're taking, you know, you ought to be able to see it. And you can identify him. You can identify him. You can bring him to trial. You can actually spare his life even as you are protecting your family and your property. You love your neighbor even when he blatantly sins against you. Now, if the thief is caught, he will pay what is owed. If he can't pay, he will be sold into slavery for his debt. If the thief is caught and has the animal in his possession and it's still alive, he only owes double instead of the four or five times amount like we just talked about. In the next case, if a man steals from his neighbor's crop or allows his animals to graze on his neighbor's field, he owes his neighbor for what he took and he must give him from the best of his field or his harvest. I mean, it would be like, for example, if someone walked up to your beautiful prize rose bushes and just helped themselves to it without asking. I mean, the thief wants the fruit of your labor in land without paying for it. In the next law, the situation is carelessness or negligence in relation to your neighbor's property or home. So if a man starts a fire and it consumes his neighbor's crop, the man owes his neighbor for that crop. It's like a family that knows they have a dead tree that needs to come down because it's threatening their neighbor's house. And instead of hiring a tree company to do it, they decide to do it themselves. Or maybe they decide to do nothing at all. When that tree destroys their neighbor's property, they owe them the full value of everything. Negligence and carelessness is a form of theft in the Bible, and I think rightly so. The next sections of laws, this is the second section, verses 7 through 15, are simple enough to understand. If your neighbor asks you to hold something for safekeeping, say he asks you to feed his dogs while he's out of town, if you agree to do this, then you are obligated to take it seriously, to take care of his property as if it was your property. But say the dogs die or they get sick or they go missing and it's not your fault. Well, you, were, you were doing your due diligence and just things went south because who knows what a dog's gonna eat. These laws protect you from culpability. But if you were negligent and you know, took your love of neighbor lightly, then you are held accountable for the damage or loss of property. And if there's a dispute over whether you are at fault or not, you take the case to God and he decides. God knows the truth of it and eventually he will make it known. Now, if you ask to borrow something from your neighbor, say it's like a tool, like a power washer or a chainsaw, and if you break it, if you break it when your neighbor is not with you or it's stolen when he's not there, you owe him the value. 
But if he's with you as you are using it, that is, he's watching you use it and he can see the situation and presumably he's fine with what you were doing, you don't owe him anything if it's destroyed. So as you think through the, and I just ran through those laws really fast. When you think through them, they all make sense. They're, they're all pretty straightforward. The question is, can you see how these laws reflect God's character and his desire for honesty integrity and love for neighbor. Can you see how they reflect how he made the world? Think about that. These laws reflect his intentions for the world and his intentions for humanity. And we keep these laws and we see them as good even when they're painful for us because we agree that is our thinking and our desires and our behavior is shaped to how and why God made us and we We agree with him that loving our neighbors and being for their flourishing, because that's what this is about. This is about for their flourishing. That's why it's love for neighbor, that we want their God-given calling to bring order to the places God has put them to go well. It's a huge part of what it actually means to be Christian. You know, we don't refuse to steal because stealing is bad in itself or because we don't want to get caught for it. Just ask the question, why? is stealing bad just because it is? You know, the world agrees that stealing is bad because nobody wants to be stolen from, but then the world goes looking like the serpent for ways to steal and get away from it, or get away with it, excuse me. No, we we refuse to steal because it brings chaos and disorder. Theft and negligence works against God's good purposes for this world. We want to be for our neighbors because God is. We want them to enjoy their property and make use of it. We want people to have dominion and stewardship. We want humans to be fully alive to God's purposes. You know, so often Christians have mistakenly thought that the real work of God's people happens mainly, if not only exclusively within the walls of the church, as if I'm the only person today doing God's will. No, and the only Christian things that that happen outside the building are evangelism or missions or helping the poor or maybe praying before a football game. Are those things of critical importance? Yes, yes they are. But what do we see God most often calling his people to do in the Old Testament? Again, how many people worked in the temple? Just one group of people. What did the rest of them do? They live their lives. It's people living out their calling to have dominion and stewardship in their everyday work and communion with God. I mean, that's exactly the message of Ecclesiastes. And the New Testament repeats this too. This is why Paul desires a quiet and ordinary life for his people in 1 Timothy 2. And he tells them to pray for it. You know, one of the most effective acts of resistance One of the most effective acts of resistance against sin and evil and Satan is to create beauty by faithfully patterning your life on God's life and working to bring order and dominion wherever he has called you to be. That's kingdom work. That's kingdom work. Your work matters. It absolutely matters. Don't value it as the world values it, as if the only work that matters is the one that comes with the biggest paycheck or notoriety. So, you know, I'm paid uh, to pray and meditate and teach God's words to you. That's my job. I'm a Levite who basically produces book reports a couple of times a week. 
I think that's kingdom work. But on Fridays, if you were to come by my house, I work about four to six hours cleaning that house and I'm dusting and I'm scrubbing toilets and I'm changing the sheets and the towels and I don't get paid a dime for that work. Does that mean that work isn't valuable? No, it's kingdom work too. Why? Because because I'm not just scrubbing a toilet to scrub a toilet. I'm doing it for the sake of the flourishing of my family. And frankly, sometimes cleaning bathrooms really is fighting against Satan. The Bible teaches that your work matters, both to you and the community. See your work as an act of resistance against sin and evil, knowing that it's often going to be frustrated because you're going to be working with other people. See your work as an opportunity to work for beauty where God has placed you, but also work for beauty by resisting the temptation to devalue your neighbor's property or your your neighbor's God-given calling to bring order to. You see, the serpent wants us to believe that we don't really need our neighbor or each other, but we do. So let's be the kind of people who don't just pray your kingdom come, your will be done on Sundays. No, may this be the reason for why we work and for why we love our neighbors. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, You've called us not to compartmentalize our lives, but rather to bring everything under your dominion. Every thought captive, every feeling captive, every desire captive to you. You have made us to be your image bearers. You've made us for the purpose of blessing this world. Obviously that calling is hard now because of sin, but even so, as we enter into this work week, as we enter into frustration at times, as we enter into triumphs and failures and having to deal with tough people, and maybe when we are the tough person to deal with, Lord, please bless us with your presence that we might want to do your will and that your will will be borne out in this world today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.